Today we're going to talk about can you inherit eternal life? The rich young ruler asked Jesus that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Can you inherit eternal life is the title of this message. So a question as we begin this study. Are you confident within your heart and mind concerning the salvation that God has wrought in your soul, your individual soul? Or do you sometimes, perhaps even often, have questions about it? There are many, many people within church settings just like ours that have struggles with worries and concerns about their salvation, unable to believe with confidence that though they may know that they receive Christ as their Savior, that their salvation is truly sure and eternal. It's one of the most difficult and demanding concepts within our Christian experience. And I confess to you that in my early years as a Christian, I personally went through a period of that kind of serious questioning. And why would that be so? Why would we be satisfied one moment and then the next moment so unsure about our salvation? Why would there suddenly become a question within our minds? I'd like to suggest that our lack of assurance may be because we really do not fully understand how we have gotten to where we are in our salvation to begin with what it really took to bring us to our blessed condition of eternal life. Here in our scripture passage for today, John the Baptist is addressing this very question with his fellow countrymen, the Jews, as they came out to the Jordan River to hear him and to be baptized by him. Their understanding of how they would obtain eternal life was by virtue of their inherited bloodline. That simply by being a Jew, God would automatically save them eternally. But such was not the case. Such was not the case. And here John the Baptist was telling them that simply being a Jew was not a guarantee of their eternal life. That something very different would be required of them. Listen again to these words. This is chapter 3 beginning in verse 7. Then he, John said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, Well, what shall we do then? And he answered them and said, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed to you. And then likewise the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse them falsely, but be content with your wages. 
In our message last week, we spoke about the response that Jesus gave to that rich young ruler that I mentioned earlier. This rich young ruler, when he came to Jesus and asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And may we say again the question that we asked a moment ago about our own personal relationship with Christ. Am I able to believe with confidence that I truly do have eternal life? Right at this moment, do I have eternal life? Or as this young man asked, what must I do then to gain eternal life? Have I taken all the steps that I'm supposed to take, that God wants me to take to obtain the salvation that he freely offers in Christ? And one question in particular. If I am truly saved, is my salvation being proven out by my behaviors, by my conduct, by the lifestyle that I live? Can another Christian look at me and easily perceive that my salvation experience is really real, that I'm really a Christian? As we consider these very important questions, may I again suggest that the real answer lies within the question that I mentioned a moment ago, the question of what it really takes to bring you and me to a blessed condition of eternal life. And as we said a moment ago, this young man, this rich young ruler, he was not at all sure of what it took for him to have eternal life. And he earnestly desired to have eternal life. Was it perhaps as these words suggest, an inherited privilege guaranteed by birthright and then passed down to the lineage of our parents. The title that is given to this young man and his position is rich young ruler. Now those words bespeak the probability that he was well trained in the ways of the ruling religious groups. He was one of the rulers, which would probably make him either a Pharisee or a Sadducee, well-trained, perhaps even a lawyer. And his question was very much in keeping with the doctrines that he had been taught. It was that deeply held belief, as I mentioned a moment ago, and it remains so today, was then and it remains so today, that the Jews are God's special family, God's chosen people. And they believed that merely based upon their Jewish heritage, because they had Abraham's blood coursing through their veins, that they would, without question, inherit eternal life, much in the same way that they would inherit the family farm from their father. And even further, that even if they did practice sinful conduct in their daily behavior, their special bloodline is Jews, along with some prescribed sacrifices that would still save them, perhaps similar in some ways to the way that we Christians of today depend upon the once saved, always saved doctrine, that doctrine that we depend upon to pull our sinful feet out of the fire. But the lessons are clear to us from all the many accounts given in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. Believing that simply having the right bloodline is enough to save a person is misguided. It is a misguided belief and it can lead to a great amount of sin 
and even, listen, even terrifying days of eternal punishment. Yes, the Jews were truly God's specially chosen people, the children of Abraham, but their heritage did not give them any special privileges regarding sin. And while the rich young ruler probably firmly believed in and inherited salvation, it's obvious from him coming to talk to Jesus and ask his questions that God was provoking his mind to question that misguided belief. And that also is why John addressed the matter head on in his call here for the people to repent. Listen to these words, beginning in verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, but we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Note again those words, verse eight. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now I know that I've said to you often that I personally believe that God has a very special place in his heart for the Israelite people. And I also have a very special place in my heart for the Israelite people today. And for them, I do firmly believe that both the Jews of the Old Testament and of the New Testament and this current generation, God still has a special place in his heart for them. But with that being said, that special relationship, whatever it may be, will never give the Jewish people the freedom to sin and not be held accountable for it. You can read that especially in Romans chapter 6. Shall we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? And God says there, by no means. God forbid. And so being Jewish, being Christian, will never give anyone freedom to sin and not be held accountable for it. God was then, he is now, and he always will be holy. And he cannot allow his holiness to be violated, whether it be by strangers or by his very own children. The Jews are you and me. That's why we read these strong words of warning given here, beginning in verse 8. Do not begin to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Folks, these words are clear, an unmistakable statement from God that salvation and that eternal life cannot be inherited from our parents. Just because those people were Jews and their parents and their grandparents were Jews, their heritage did not guarantee them personal salvation. And that same message must also be clear for you and me. Because as strange as it might seem, many people within our modern-day evangelical churches have some of those same misguided beliefs embedded within their soul. How often have you heard it said in our Presbyterian setting, I've been a Presbyterian, a good Presbyterian all my life. Or perhaps 
I grew up as a Baptist. And every time those church doors were open, we were in there. Folks, please accept God's special warning from these words. Salvation and eternal life cannot be inherited or passed along from generation to generation. Salvation and eternal life is an individual, special, unique transaction of surrender that must take place between each individual person and the Lord Jesus. Salvation can take place in no other way. I'm going to say that two or three times before this message is over. I want us to understand that. Yes, you and I can, and we do, inherit some things from our parents and our grandparents. But unfortunately, that inheritance is of a very different nature. The nature that comes down from them through their bloodline is nothing more, listen, than a wretched and corrupt sinful nature. And by the way, the inheritance of a sinful nature is absolutely guaranteed. No doubt, no exception. You and I will always inherit a sinful nature from our parents. Scripture tells us that. But let me say again, never will that be so with salvation. Neither for the Jews then or for any of us. We can never inherit salvation from our parents. Salvation and eternal life is an individual, special and unique transaction of surrender that must take place personally between each of us and the person of the Lord Jesus. And again, it can take place in no other way. Now with that being said, how then, how then does that special and unique transaction of salvation take place? How does it take place? In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, we read that our salvation is a gift from God, a free gift from God, by grace, through faith, in the Lord Jesus. Our salvation, our eternal life is a gift from God by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. In the book of Romans, especially in chapter 3, we read that God purchased our salvation through what he calls justification. That's a transaction by which he paid in full the penalty for all of our sins. That's what Jesus said there on the cross, that it was paid in full. Folks, God's concern for our sin is not what we might think it to be. Sin is so abhorrent to God that it must be wiped away and removed from us completely. So completely that it's as if it had never taken place to begin with. And to do that, it must be paid for in full. That's what the word propitiation that we read there in Romans 3 means. And that's it. only done. It's only done through the shedding of the atoning blood of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Only then has our sin been completely removed from our wretched souls, just as if it had never happened. Folks, I picture myself walking into heaven sometime soon. I cannot step into the presence of the Lord with even one iota of sin remaining. It has to be completely removed. It took the blood of Christ to remove my wretched sin as if it had never happened. That's justification. And our receiving that justification of our souls is what it takes to wipe away the penalties and to give us eternal life with Christ in heaven. With some words 
given in Romans chapter 5. God traces for us the steps on how sin first entered into our souls. And there he prescribed for us his special provision of justification to overcome our sins. Listen to these words. This is Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. He says there, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the Lord Jesus, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now let me repeat these things that I said again, because I want us to really know the truth of these words. It's as God's words tell us, the justification that brings salvation and brings eternal life can only be gained through the free gift that Christ brought to us in his shed blood on the cross. His blood and his blood alone is sufficient to pay the penalty for the debt of our sin. No inheritance from our parents or our grandparents. No works of righteousness. Nothing else that we could do would be sufficient to pay the debt for sin. Only the shed blood of Christ. Our part in the transaction, our response to God's plan for our justification is a simple one. It begins with this call that John the Baptist is giving. It's first to repent. To repent. To know that we truly are sinners and that we are no better than a brood of vipers continually in violation of God's laws and His plans for us. And to know also that we in ourselves have no way of wiping away our own sin and that only Jesus with His shed blood can do that. And then after knowing all of that, our part is to surrender. To surrender our hearts to Him. That's our part. Folks, I keep saying over and over again that I fear that our modern day evangelical brand of salvation is misguiding. Perhaps even as misguiding as the Jews believing that they could inherit eternal life from their parents. To truly believe that we need a Savior, listen, to truly believe that we need a Savior, we must first believe that we're a sinner. Do you believe that you are a sinner? We don't need to know all the doctrines behind sin and salvation to accept Jesus as free gift. But listen, we do need to know why we're accepting Jesus as our Savior. And I fear that too often we're so eager to get that person to walk down that aisle and say that sinner's prayer that they don't even begin to understand that they truly are a sinner and what it means to be a sinner. We just want them to accept Jesus. And they really can't. They can't unless they understand what sin is and why they need a Savior. Folks, we are sinners and we can't save ourselves. We need Jesus to save us. All of the other steps into salvation follow on from that one point. We must simply believe. And, and folks, I, I don't mean believe with our minds. That's one of the tragic failures of so many. The word given in these scriptures 
For belief is one that expresses a transaction that takes place within a person's heart, not just within their mind. Yes, we can rationally decide when something's right or wrong from our own perspective, but not from God's perspective. We have to know that we need Christ as our Savior with our heart and not just with our minds. Belief that takes place in the heart is of a whole different and more powerful nature. It's faith, true faith, a powerful kind of believing that will cause us to do things that we've never done before. With believing faith, our life and our lifestyles truly will begin to change. And that's the evidence, if it's real. We'll begin to do things like those spoken about here by John the Baptist. We'll begin to bear fruits that are worthy of that repentance. We'll find a willingness developing within our hearts to share our food and clothing and money with other people. We begin to want to conduct our business affairs more fairly. We'll begin to say words to other people that we've never said before. Words of the gospel. But we might lead them to find what we have found. Much of the book of James is devoted to bringing us to this understanding. And you'll recall when we studied in the book of James some months back, that God tells us over and over again that it is not the hearers of the word of God that are saved. The true evidence of our salvation will be seen only as we become doers of his word. Now with all of this being said, may I say these words to us again so that there's no confusion about salvation. Salvation cannot come to us merely through our bloodline. We've said that. Neither as Jewish folks believe, neither as we might want to believe because we are faithful to attend church. Or, by the way, as our Catholic friends and some of our Episcopalian friends uh, might believe that our salvation and eternal life is not conferred upon us by baptism. They fully believe that. But that simply is not the way of God's grace. It's not how it works. God has a special and specific way that he has designed to bring his chosen ones to eternal life. And we read about that in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. And I'd like for you to mark this in your Bible, and I'd like for you to read it more than once. Okay? Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 9. Listen to these words. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, not just your mind, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what, what he has heard from us? 
And then the next verse, so important. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. These words that I've just read to us, they are God's plan and design, his only plan and design that will bring you and me and anyone else to salvation and to eternal life. The only thing that's required of us is believing faith. And folks, even our believing faith is a gift of grace from God. So then, so then, the answer to the question that that rich young ruler asked Jesus is found in these simple truths. And these same truths are the answer for your and my questions about eternal life. And so I appeal to each of us to not rest until we have all of it as it's given here. Verse 9 again of Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then finally from 1 John 5, and this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Precious words. Let's pray.